Hi everyone and welcome back to Nextcasts. We're excited to kick off this special podcast series titled Space, Science and Switzerland. It's produced in collaboration with the Consulate General of Switzerland in San Francisco and is hosted by myself and Jale Yoldis, who is the Cultural and Public Diplomacy Officer at the Consulate. We interview experts who explore Switzerland's involvement in space. We'll cover how space research is used to better understand challenges we face on Earth, such as climate change. We'll discuss NASA's recent mission to Mars and the role of international law and the UN in space. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Nextcasts via SoundCloud or iTunes. And here's our first episode. I'm interviewing Maria Santos, Assistant Professor of Earth System Science at the University of Zurich in the Department of Geography. I met Maria last year in 2019 at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, Los Angeles. It was the kickoff of a collaboration between the University of Zurich and NASA to better understand how the Earth and its climate are changing. Here's our interview. Okay, um, my name is Maria Santos. I'm currently an assistant professor in Earth System Science at the University of Zurich in the Department of Geography. And the focus of my research is to understand uh, how ecological processes enable social processes and therefore the feedbacks between these two components. To give you an example, so say, Biodiversity provides several ecosystem services, being it food or water or timber or recreation opportunities that human societies depend on and their livelihoods are dependent on. And then because of this use, depending on the intensity of this use, it may have positive or negative uh, outcomes to biodiversity in turn. So understanding this at the um, local and sometimes at the global scale, so how these processes uh, interact at the different scales. Could you explain how scientists use data gathered in space to research challenges we face on Earth, like climate change? So when the first satellites were able to observe the Earth, we were first able to describe our planet. We were able to describe the distribution and the biogeography of different um, biomes at a global level. How do they get, how do they evolve to be in the places where they are? How do they relate to climate? And then we start, so first of all is this documenting. So of how does it look like? What is the pattern that we observe? And then we move into the the processes because we know it's dynamic. We know our earth uh, is moving and it depends, this movement is also in coordination with the movement of the sun. So how does this incidence of solar energy actually uh, drives ability or not to photosynthesize and how different biomes. Then throughout the year with the seasons, understanding the seasonality. And then of course, with understanding of the seasonalities in these rotations, we understand how our climate system actually works. So uh, space research was very fundamental to have a first understanding at the global level, how our climate system works. And then if we think about 
climate system, we are also talking about the carbon cycle, the water cycle, and the nutrient cycles, and what we call the energy balance as well. So how much solar radiation comes in, how much energy leaves the planet after it passes through the atmosphere. So space research was very fundamental to understand what are the vegetated areas on Earth, and therefore to understand these exchanges in terms of evapotranspiration, exchanges in terms of carbon, and how do they change in a very short time frame or seasonal time frame or yearly or decadal time frame to understand the processes of the atmosphere that move this evapotranspiration to other places. Where does it uh, become precipitable water? Where does it become the cryosphere? The, the tempos or the, the temporal spans of these different movements and this global redistribution of these processes. And then of course, nowadays we have much more technology and much more advanced sensors. And now we're entering a very interesting era where we're moving from weather observation satellites or Earth observation satellites like MODIS and Landsat into the imaging spectroscopers idea, but also into satellites very specific for photosynthesis uh, that have uh, sensors for photosynthesis or for looking into stress or to looking into CO2 distribution into the atmosphere. So many more details of this broader understanding of the Earth system processes because we were able to advance in our capability of develop sensors that are sensitive to what we want to measure. We know better what we need to still measure. And then we know better due to engineering, how to launch it into space, what kind of angles and what kind of orientations we want uh, this technology to be responding to. We're improving dramatically in uh, not only in spectral resolution, but also spatial and temporal resolution of the data collection. And so we're really uh, starting to get an excellent tool set of uh, observation options that allows us to move beyond just the description of the patterns, but actually to understand the processes that are underlying these patterns that we observe. So space research or Earth observation research, that's uh, a way that we tend to designate this, this area of research because you can have space observation or Earth observation research. It has very, been very fundamental uh, in understanding the processes. In this new generation, in the last 10 years or so, um, Earth observation research has also been moving towards applications so if we think about sustainable development goals and being able to monitor our progress in uh, achieving certain goals by a different time frames, so same carbon capture or deforestation or water resources. So a lot of applications are emerging now that make use of the data because of this spatial resolution, temporal resolution and the spectral resolution. It allows us to have uh, a picture of how these are in static but also in dynamic uh, forms so that we now start to have a, an idea where we should be and where are we and so be able to compare these different uh, metrics into the future i think is very fantastic of course it's not a panacea we still have a lot of research and there's it's 
limited to what we are able to resolve in terms of space and uh, spatial and temporal resolution, but also spectral resolution. But I think we are now um, gathering a set of observations that are unprecedented. And I imagine in the next 10, 15 years, we will have a lot of discovery of how these processes work at a much finer scale. But also, we will be able to provide capacity globally to do some of these measurements that, and uh, indicator um, information that governments at different levels need to report on and do it in a systematic way so that we can compare uh, performance of the different go governments to properly attribute um, behaviors and properly uh, understand and devise policies that respond to the needs of the different um, governance bodies. Of course, it's limited because there's other type of information that is fundamental to link to these observations. And this information comes from uh, stations on the ground or from field measurements. And these are, in my opinion, complementary ways of observing the Earth that are all necessary for developing better models of how Earth processes actually operate across scales. And could you explain how you collaborate with space agencies like NASA or ESA or private sector space companies? I've worked with um, sensors from NASA and ESA, so, but also for the airborne imaging spectroscopy, we also hired companies um, like HIMAP and Spectre to be able to use their sensors. And currently we're uh, experimenting with data from Planet, which is a private sector um, company to see the complementation of these different type of data that are provided by both public and private sector um, space or earth observation capability. I do think into the future, they have different roles into our ability of um, measure different domains of space, time and, uh, and, and spectral resolution. And so the integration will be very interesting because ultimately what we want to be able to understand is these scaling processes. So how do we go from local to global and how do we go from global to, to local? And at the moment, there's no one private or public that is able to fund all the need for these sensors. So it's more of a constellation and the communication and working together that will get us where we'll need to be into the future, or at least for now with what we have, that is the possibility that I see. You've worked both in California and in Switzerland. Can you explain what you researched? So I lived in California for about nine years, and I was in three different universities during my time. So I did my, my PhD studies, doctoral studies uh, at University of California, Davis. And during that time, I was mostly uh, focused on a project that uh, looked into ecological health and 
impact to society in the California Sacramento San Joaquin uh, River Delta. Mm -hmm. And so the focus of the project was to look into invasive species um, mapping, distribution, spread, how did it change the ecological processes and the interactions between these invasive species with endangered species, but also with agriculture and water resources uh, in the Delta and in the state, because we all know that the Delta is very fundamental to provide water resources uh, in the state. Uh, I also worked at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology uh, at the University of California, Berkeley. And there we were looking into um, the Sierra Nevada, and we were looking into the distribution of biodiversity in historical context and modern context and trying to understand how effects of climate and land use changes over a century affected biodiversity assemblies and biodiversity processes and how are these related and can be used into projecting different kinds of biodiversity futures for the state but also thinking about climate smart agriculture climate smart land use planning and how do we actually meet all of these goals together. And then finally, I was also a postdoc at the Brillane Center for the American West at Stanford University. And there I was focusing uh, on reconstructing the history of conservation in California. Uh, and here we're talking about open space conservation and what are the different components of this history. So the pressure for land, how do you assign land for conservation and assign land for development and what are the impacts of these assignments on um, different types of resources that are needed for the state, different securities and different developments in terms of ecosystems but also in terms of fire and in terms of distribution of uh, land uses in the state. Could you share any findings in terms of land use, water security and sustainability in this region, especially given our current times where the impact of climate change has become increasingly visible and visceral with the devastating recent and ongoing wildfires in California? So in terms of um the first project in terms of water security, I think the Delta is a very interesting and extremely complex system to look into. So to give you a bit of perspective, we were um, uh, in a project that was funded by the Department of Boating and Waterways because they had a mandate to control invasive species, both submerged, floating and uh, wetland invasive species. And because these species, they are in aquatic environments, they have a lot of mixing and so they move around very fast also because of boats bringing them and also by the tidal system because the Sacramento San Joaquin River Delta is a very unique delta because it has actually two tidal phases during the day. So there's a lot of mixing. So typical field in situ surveys would be very difficult to conduct in such an extensive area to really be able to map where these species are and where they are spreading to be able to target uh, campaigns for um, pesticide and for controlling these species and also to be able to do so and avoid 
targeting habitat for an endangered species such as the delta smelt. And so we were commissioned to use uh, remote sensing, in this case imaging spectroscopy, airborne collected, so uh, uh, imaging spectroscopy sensor mounted on an airplane that would collect data over the entire delta uh, at a very specific time uh, in the year, so mostly the beginning of the summer, and at specific tidal uh, ranges, so at low tide, so that we could observe the or detect the submerged species and for the entire delta. And so what we worked on was to develop algorithms and ways to process these data sets to detect the species. So looking into specific characteristics of these species that could be detectable from the image, produce uh, maps of their distribution. And then over time, so this project is still ongoing, it's still ongoing with several agencies in the state, so they still collect repeated uh, uh, imaging spectroscopy measurements. And so over time to understand how these invasive species and how these communities and ecosystems of the Delta are dynamic and how do they respond to different pressures. So we looked into uh, drought effects or winters that were extremely warm or extremely cold and what the kind of implications would they have for these invasive species. So main findings were uh, a very detailed map of the area covered by the different species in these different realms, um, different kinds of habitats that they tended to occupy and habitats that they tended not to occupy, responses to herbicide treatment and different types of treatment, how or when would these species affect the habitat for uh, fish species assemblages and whether they were promoting invasion of fish species as well and then looking into the interaction between the different types of management for the different goals being it endangered species invasive species and water resources in the state I remember when we first met at NASA JPL in Pasadena and you presented a map of all the various actors involved in water governance in the region. Could you talk a bit about this? So the, the delta itself, so there is a physical boundary to the delta, which is also a political boundary, so the, the limits, the jurisdiction of the different agencies that play a role in the delta. And these different uh, agencies or stakeholders or actors, however you prefer to uh, call them, and they range from local agricultural uh, cooperatives all the way to state and even federal agencies. To give an example, and the levies are managed by the Army Corps of Engineers, the US Forest Service managed some of the forest in that region. The Department of Boating and Waterways is managing the water, but the, the USDA, so the United States Department of Agriculture, manages the agricultural land. And then there's a lot of private property owners that also play a role. And then you have the cities who actually have uh, the decision power on the land use related to the Delta. And then you have agencies like the California Department of 
Fish and Wildlife or the California uh, the Parks Department that also play a role because they have parks within the Delta and the, the Fish and Wildlife because of the endangered species and that take place. So there's a very extensive network, I think over 600 participants in the network that manages the Delta. And of course we have uh, the water boards and many other agencies that directly or indirectly have a say into the management of this very complex system. It sounds like it would be quite difficult to find consensus around sustainable solutions and to implement policies. Do you think this is challenging in the region? I think uh, from the history of managing the Delta, that has been definitely the case. Um, if you take the example of the peripheral canal, like in the 1980s, 1990s, that was opposed because of the current of the at time understanding of what the processes were for the Delta and now is being proposed as a solution for water um, management in the system. And then of course, different agencies have different jurisdictions and sometimes they are overlapping, but sometimes they are not. And so it's a, a very long negotiation process. And then um, what we're moving into, if we talk about climate change or land use change or into future sustainability is actually that these decisions need to be a little bit flexible in time. And so one solution in 2020 may not be the same solution that you will have in 2025. So allowing for this flexibility in the decision space is also uh, a need. So what the peripheral canal also illustrates is that in 1980s, 1990s, that seemed to be the agreed upon solution that made a lot of sense based on scientific sound knowledge at the time. But now we know better or we know more about how the system actually works and how it would be affected. And there's other goals that need to be attended for. So if you want to achieve multiple goals, you need to be aware of what are the synergies, but also of the trade-offs of those. And then it becomes uh, a much more uh, elaborate debate on how to go about it and decisions at different temporal frames, so more immediate decisions, say when are we gonna apply herbicides for this uh, invasive species? So we had to apply them outside, say the breeding season of these endangered fish. And they also needed to not interact with the ability of providing fresh water to Southern California. So there were a lot of very short time frame decisions, but then there's the five-year decision plan, so what are we going to do? Or if we think about the some of the work that we were doing with land use planning and land use models for the state, uh, what is the time scale at which uh, cities and the government of the state actually decides on these land use plans and these, these uh, regional development plans, they have a frame of 15 to 20 years. So if we plan for 50 to 20 years, what would it look like? And if we think about climate change, we're talking about a century. And so are we able to plan in these different time frames? and can we adapt our planning and our way of making decisions to these different temporal spans? 
Do you think that in the context that we're living in now, where we're seeing the impact of climate change really speeding up changes to our environment, that governing actors are keeping up with these changes to be able to implement impactful solutions? In a personal opinion, yes and no. So there are some reasons why the actors are unable to do so. So we have some legacies in terms of the policies and some legacies on how and who is actually able to manage a given resource in the state. So who has the, the actual power to decide uh, ultimately. And so we had policies of no surprises. So we had to have a very good understanding of the system before being able to even provide the management advice. Um, we had uh, legacies of policies of let's have all the participants come into a room, think about collaborative processes. We had legacies of policies such as adaptive management. So how do we actually adapt and how do we actually provide sufficient knowledge and information to be able to, to decide. And we're moving into a phase that we have to make decisions on imperfect information. And so that is uh, quite difficult to do on, on our regular basis, let alone in a, a larger scale. So we want to include these, but also the some of the policy processes, they just take time and they are inherently time consuming. And so sometimes of the responses, we need a much faster response time that the processes typically are able to respond to. Of course, we see some examples that the response time can be accelerated, but these are some limitations from the legal aspect, from the institutional aspect, from just the meetings that are necessary, whether we want to reach a consensus or not. And so a lot of these negotiation processes, they are inherently lengthy. So if we want to respond fast, we need to be able to either create redundancies in the system or having some way of streamline some of the decisions that we can predict and this idea of um, no surprises may need to be revisited because we may need to have a portfolio of uh, options when an unprecedented event comes by, like the fires, for example, or some droughts. How do we respond in a, in a fast way? So in a theoretical and a scientific or a research point of view, we're still trying to figure out how to respond to this. So how, how do different actors actually uh, respond to some of these different pressures at different timelines and intensities and magnitudes? There's a set of models of uh, governance, there's a set of models of agent-based models on how do agents actually respond differently. We're learning how these systems behave to be able to inform uh, how to move forward. But some of the part that is very important is that we're going to move into a much more uncertain and difficult to predict world. And we have uh, eroded some of the resilience of our systems because of our past and current use of resources and land attributions. And so we need to account that into the picture as well because the resilience is not the same that we have had up to now. I think it would be really interesting to hear your opinion about how these types of issues are managed in Switzerland in comparison to the US. 
Are there similar issues and can you compare how they are managed? I think it's a bit different or difficult to compare because the underlying system and also the constitution of the United States and the way that the governance takes place in Switzerland is very different because um, in the United States you have uh, a very strong divide between public and private property and different types of rules abide to whether it's public or private property and in Switzerland that is not uh, the case and then you have different legacies of uh, how people have interacted with the resources themselves and so for example Endangered Species Act is very unique from the United States uh, and that doesn't happen elsewhere and I find for example the way of rotational presidency in in switzerland is very unique to switzerland that is you really don't have other comparable systems in that way the the issues are similar so we have farming issues here in switzerland as well water resources issues because it's also from presentable water melting water from mountains and uh, glaciers and in in california most of the water sources are also from melting snow in the, in the mountains so that is also a, a similar issue population wise you have much more concentrated areas in some parts of the state in california and in, in switzerland is a bit more distributed and you have of course in switzerland a much longer history of human or um, of western societies and then in then in california that you have had the, the processes of colonization uh, at the turn of the 19th century and that also makes it for a very different uh, perspective so in a way the social ecological issues that we're dealing with they are common across the board and there's actually some interesting um, research on like okay where in the world what are the geographical regions that face the same problems or the same set of problems but then of course uh, that's why nation states are independent. They have their own way of doing their governance that either is set in the constitution or whether there are committees or checks and balances and how many uh, governance levels you have involved in a decision making. And that's very unique from the different, um, different uh, states. That being said, of course, we can learn from each other. We're always and historically we've always learned from each other how does this place resolve these issues when they are faced with it so if you take the example of fires we had fires in australia we had fires in amazon we had fires in the northern latitudes we had them in europe and now in california and everyone is looking at each other to learn from each other of how did you manage this now with covid19 we're always comparing different countries so what regulations do we put uh, if you compare New Zealand to Germany to the US or to Brazil or different ways of, of governing. So in part, we also learn from, from each other. So in comparison to, for example, Switzerland and California, I think the mountain regions, they actually are managed in a quite similar way. But then in terms of the country, it's very diffi difficult to compare Switzerland to the United States in terms of, of the management. You explained how there's quite a distinction between the public and the private sector in America. 
Can you explain how it is in Switzerland? Um, so with, I've been in Switzerland for two years, so pardon me if I make a mistake in understanding. I think um, the divide between private and public property is quite different because it's the foundation for the United States actually that you are private owner and you have the right to do whatever you feel like in your private land with some exceptions of course and in Europe in general and in Switzerland in particular that has not been the case it's like there's a, a governing body that can come into your private property and say okay now this is going to be reserved and you're restricted to what you can do but there's also a lot of pressure from private owners to influence governing say the uh, the farmers or the alpine uh, producing uh, regions so they also influence quite a bit the, the government decisions so that's what i meant by the difference between the public and private property and in in europe you have the european union and in switzerland you don't have european union but you mimic sometimes the same structure that is like governing body a much higher level that then influences how a member state actually manages their own uh, resources and now if we're thinking about our system processes and governing for climate change or global land use and changes we're even thinking about the uh, global governance structure so not a UN but some structure that deals with governance at the global level so for issues like uh, carbon emissions that have global impacts and global distribution it's they don't stay so if i emit here in switzerland the carbon dioxide that i emit here in switzerland doesn't stay over the swiss uh, skies <laughs> that's what i mean by this global governance so that there is a need for some other structure and so that of course influences how uh, the sovereignty of a country or sovereignty of a private owner to decide what to do And what could that look like in the future, this idea of a governing body that oversees these types of issues? Do you have any idea of what that could look like? That is an excellent question. It's still, uh, so there is a push in the last five to 10 years, I think, of this global uh, governance idea. Um, bodies like UN, they tend to be more like uh, observers or they act in some ways but they are very bounded to some agreements with different countries and it would need to take place something like that but it could be something like an expansion of um so ipcc is just a um advisory board but it could be an expansion on that that would have some regulatory but it will be uh, very interesting to see the buy-in from the different governments and whether they feel participation to be even or equitable and how that will be developing and then of course it will create a lot of issues of sovereignty and borders and who actually dictates or how the decisions will be made it's it's really a new type of governance that it's unprecedented because even these global organizations uh, they haven't uh, been they haven't been fundamental in many issues but they don't have the regulatory power that the global governance uh, 
approach would need to be able to so right now ipcc and the the carbon credits so they are volunteer and the the, the government's pledge that they will do certain reductions by a certain amount of time uh, but these are all very volunteer they are not set in uh, official uh, regulations and official documentation so this is what a global governing body would be able to police is these, the compliance with these uh, more official commitments towards reductions in CO2 or towards reduction in biodiversity loss or uh, towards food security or water security because um, it is predicted that several of these conflicts will become more frequent. We're predicting a lot of climate-induced uh, migration. We're predicting a lot more, a lot more pandemic uh, risks. So it is really fundamental to start to think seriously on how these uh, global uh, aspects can be managed through a new type of governance structure that we haven't experienced to date. Thank you for explaining that. It's um yeah, I think we're we're living in these un unprecedented times currently with 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 COVID nineteen borders um, being shut and you know in in other parts of uh, around the world we're also dealing with things like you know the black lives matters movement racial inequity and now the climate crisis is really being brought to the forefront of people's minds it's it's been it's been there it's, this isn't new but it's it's more at the forefront because it's because people can see it in places like california and, and in australia and, and in the amazon so i think these raising awareness around these issues and, and how we could work to a more unified goal uh, globally is, is really interesting to talk about and to, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I think, you know, we're, we've been talking about the systems level, but um, we're also interested in how individuals can, can contribute. How can we as a global connected society ensure a healthy and sustainable planet for future generations? And I'm interested from, I mean, I think you've talked about it from a global systems perspective of the idea of a new governance system, but what about on the individual level? So I think we can have a lot of influence in um, um, basically four domains, right? So these four domains include, so first of all, we're people that vote. We're in mostly democratic systems. So we can influence the democratic process through our vote, through our participation, in these uh, processes that have been developed to being able to give people uh, the ability to express themselves to express their views on how uh, to go about into the future so in theory our elected officials will represent our opinion on how the world should look like into the future so that's the first thing we can put pressure so Fridays for Future are a very good example of putting pressure in policymakers or when we have IPCC or uh, different types of uh, meetings globally putting or even in the World Economic Forum to have a discussion with policymakers, with the decision makers, with the negotiators on how would we like the world to look like in 2030, 2050 and into the future. So that is the first thing is in the policymaker we vote 
uh, we can create um, different ways to propose different legislations or different types of laws and regulations at the different governance levels and we can influence these we can participate in city hall meetings we can participate in elections it's very fundamental that we take our role as a civil society participant and actively uh, use our rules in a democratic society and use our uh, rights as a democratic society member to express our opinions. Then, of course, we have big roles uh, in terms of our consumption patterns. What do we consume? Where do, does it come from? How do we live our lives? Are we closing the tap? Are we closing the light when we go out? Uh, what kind of food do you select? Where does it come from? How many times do you travel by plane? Do you own a car? Those kinds of consumption patterns we want more sustainable clothing industry. We want more sustainable types of industry. The industries, we are their clients. So the same way that we vote for our representatives, we are clients of a given industry. So our consumption patterns will demonstrate the industries of where they can go because that's where the market will go. And then that gets us to the industry side. So we can be also very responsible in the production. So we can have sustainable production. How do we think about our production system? So there's a lot of uh, issues about like local production, where, where does the waste go? Uh, how do we make it more sustainable with sustainable buildings, with sustainable materials? How to give a second life to materials? So how do we change our production systems to become more sustainable? And then finally, but this was on purpose to call it finally because we can have a lot of influence in our economics where do we invest where do we want our savings accounts to be invested on so we have a lot of universities for example divesting on investing on fossil fuel um, based industries but we're now also talking about uh, sustainable investment so we're invo involved in a competence center here on sustainable investment so how do we invest in production consumption systems to maintain our livelihoods and our um, ways of living so that it doesn't harm um, or it doesn't produce too many uh, CO2 emissions or doesn't harm biodiversity or does the same ecosystem processes that our livelihoods are dependent on. So we can make a lot of decisions in terms of investment. There were a few um, reports produced at the European Union and also in Switzerland of like subsidies that harm biodiversity or subsidies that harm uh, climate and so can we invest differently can we invest and also insurance companies here in Switzerland in particular they are very interested in like okay we're going to have a lot of risks because of climate hazards or because of climate of biodiversity loss we will need to have a, a way to invest to reduce these risks or to be able to mitigate or to respond to these risks. So where will we invest? Will we invest in a company that has a lot of pollution impacts or uh, is responsible for deforestation? Or do we invest in a company that is able to do the same, but uh, at zero deforestation or at carbon neutral ways? So, these are, in my opinion, the ways that we as citizens 
can be involved. So we can be involved in the policy making. We're putting pressure in the policy and decision makers, but we can also have grassroots uh, approaches on our consumption patterns to really have a, a sit down moment. Like what, what, what am I doing? How am I living my life? Can I change a few things? And I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm going to change my life completely. I'm going to make a lot of sacrifices. We're talking about sustained changes that are um, possible within our lifetime and within our choices, because we have choices. We are uh, humans, we are actors that have a choice and we can choose differently if we wish to do so. Well, Maria, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience, and we wish you all the best with your ongoing research that ensures a healthy, sustainable future for ourselves and our planet. I would like to thank you for the invitation. It was very nice. And I look forward to see what Swiss Next develops next. Thank you, Maria, and thank you, everyone, for listening.